Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. You're now tuned into the Hot Awful Channel. Hot awful. Bi-quarterly women's social club. Dazed and convicted. Pool party radio. The devil's advocate. The projection booth. Awful flicks. Hot, Hot awful. Hot Support for the Projection Booth podcast comes from Stitcher Smart Radio. Now podcast listeners can access the latest episodes of the Projection Booth and thousands of other podcasts on the go without downloading or syncing. Stitcher instantly delivers episodes of your favorite shows to your mobile phone. Stitcher Smart Radio can be found in the iPhone and Android app stores or on the web at stitcher.com slash booth. It was a New York phenomenon. It was to gays what Deep Throat was to straights. But there were as many women, really, as there were men, couples and everything, because it had become very mainstream, very odd phenomenon. Oh, it was all over New York. I mean, everybody in New York. It was in the papers and stuff like that. I don't remember any of that. It wasn't all over my part of New York. I don't know. (laughs) But it didn't... It was, oh, really? Well, I hope he made a lot of money out of the porn yeah. film. Was, yeah, it was, in the, trade, it was in the trade papers and stuff. One of our dates, I have to go back a little bit, was uh, I took Roger to see Boys in the Band, the play. And down the line, we hear, did you know uh, Wake has done a movie called Boys in the Sand? And we were like, oh, God, that sounds great. That's so cool. <laughs> Boys in the Sand, doesn't that sound good? You yeah. want to go see it? So we went to see it. And I think it gave the audiences, made them comfortable about going to see something, gave them that there was a certain amount of respectability around it that made it okay to just be adventurous and go see what he was up to and what this picture was all about. (laughs) And it was a little bit different than we expected, (laughs) but I thought it was great. And Roger was like a little more... uh, I don't know, laid back about it? I was, well, I was, yeah. I mean, we, we, we sat on the third row <laughs> over to the side. And it was, it was boys in the sand, boys in the aisles, boys everywhere. Yeah. <laughs>
Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me is my stalwart cohort, Mr. Rob St. Mary. Sun, sand, and skin. It's a beautiful thing. Also joining us this week is writer and filmmaker, Jim Tushinsky. Greetings, folks. This week we are discussing Boys in the Sand, the 1971 landmark film from director Wakefield Poole. The film was one of the first adult films to find crossover success into more mainstream audiences, preceding Deep Throat's success. What's more remarkable is that the film is a gay erotica motion picture that came out a mere year and a half after the Stonewall riots. The film consists of three sections, presented without dialogue and with a classical musical score. Our guest co-host this week, Jim Tushinsky, directed a documentary about director Wakefield Poole called I Always Said Yes, The Many Lives of Wakefield Poole, and I'm sure we'll be talking a lot about that film as we go along. But first, I wanted to ask you, when did you first see Boys in the Sand, and what was your initial impression, sir? You know, I don't know exactly when I saw it first. I certainly knew about it for years before I saw it. I had actually seen Wakefield's film Bijou first. And then I guess I must have seen Boys in the Sand. It was probably in the 80s sometime uh, on VHS. Um, it might have been even as late as the early 90s. It's, it's, it's a, I don't really remember when, it, when I first saw it, actually. It's just so, always sort of been there. Tell me about when you first saw Bijou, then. Oh, my God. I was blown away. For those of you who don't know, there's a big difference between Boys in the Sand and Bijou. Boys in the Sand is very... Um, Vanilla, let's say, uh, very you know, lots of sunshine, uh, gorgeous houses, beautiful uh, scenery, beautiful men. Bijou is a dark sort of psychedelic Rorschach test, really. It entirely depends on your mood and and what your psychology is that will determine what you get out of the film, because it's so open ended and enigmatic and and just gorgeous to look at so it's a very different movie and i just was blown away by bijou i thought oh my god this is the sort of thing i love it's dark twisted sexy but it isn't traditional porn it's like a half an hour before there's any sex at all that was what really got me excited and then i went back and saw boys in the sand just because you had to it was like this historic film that uh, people had talked about so I, i knew i needed to see that at some point well, I've seen Boys in the Sand and Bijou, and we'll get more into that in a bit. But how it came onto my radar was, as you know, on the show, I was a supporter of the restoration of the opening of Misty Beethoven, which um, Stephen at Distribpix was doing. And either in the commentary or in the uh, documentaries, there was this discussion on Casey Donovan, who was in um, opening Misty Beethoven. And someone said, something about, well, he was in this film in 1971 called Boys in the Sand. It was very important. And I had, you know, I'm not, you know, even though I did work in a video store that had a large adult section, and I also worked in a bookstore that had a decent-sized adult section as well, wasn't really familiar with the film. I think part of it had to do with the fact that I hadn't watched a lot of gay film, and specifically of that era. So, when I heard that or uh, saw that in the um, opening of Misty Beethoven extras, I was like, God, I don't look this up. So I looked it up and was totally blown away by the fact that here was a film that came out in 1971. It was a crossover success. I mean, meaning that they had ads in the New York Times. They had actual reviews from Variety and other places. There were celebrities that came out to see it. And I said, 
Where does that sound familiar? Oh, a year later with Deep Throat. So maybe, you know, looking at the history and now, as we'll discuss going forward in, in the show, and you'll also hear from Mr. Poole himself, that is indeed the case, that this film was actually the one that sort of helped set the track for what Deep Throat would do and all of that stuff that would come after when we talk about sort of the mainstream of what a film became in the early to mid-1970s. And um, it's fascinating to view it through that lens. I think... Even if you, um, I, I know that we had a few people on Facebook and things like that go, well, I think I'm going to skip that episode because, you know, I'm a straight guy. Why do I care about this gay film? Well, I think the history of this alone, even if you don't find uh, gay sex on film exciting to you, uh, is definitely worth worth your time and, and learning about this whole history of Wakefield Pool and especially what Jim has done with the documentary. It's quite amazing. I first ran across Wakefield Pool's name years and years ago. Uh, it might have been in Film as a Subversive Art, but I read about Bible first and really kind of got a bee in my bonnet about Bible because I'm a, a big fan of kind of subversive erotica when it comes to retelling or reinterpreting biblical stories through an erotic lens. You know, things like uh, Him or I Saw Jesus Die or any of these, because there's just a, a ton of, well, not a ton, but there are certainly quite a few erotic films that have a religious angle to them, let's say, and read about Bible and then read about Wakefield, picked up his book, uh, Dirty Pool, read about his films, but I never, I don't know, this must have been pre-internet or something, because I had really no idea where I was going to find these movies. Finding uh, heterosexual porn was difficult enough for me at this time. Finding gay porn, it was like a whole other world. So there was no way I was going to be able to find where these were. And then as time went on, I found that Bible just was not available whatsoever. It was one of these, you know, like holy grail of films for me for a long, long time. And then I started to get back into his work. And I think it was through you, Rob, you had brought this up and I said, oh, I read this guy's book. I know I know who Wakefield Poole is. Okay. And then tracked down Jim and got to talking to him. And then when I found out that Jim was doing this documentary, it's like, wow, you know, all the, the stars just aligned in the right way. So finally, I was able to see Bible. I was able to see Boys in the Sand. And I was able to see Bijou. And totally blew me away. I have to say, just like you, Jim, Bijou really put the zap on me. Um, I think that Boys in the Sand is so important historically that we kind of, when we decided what we would you know, focus on with this episode, that we said, okay, that one really deserves a spotlight. But Bijou, as far as entertainment value and what it does for my head when I watch it, it's like, yeah, that's the one where it's at. Because Boys in the Sand... Though it is such a groundbreaking film, and it's very visually striking, I have to to give it that, it isn't as far out and in that sweet spot for me where Bijou is as far as the way that the story is being told. And I think it's really just an evolution of a filmmaker, because you get to see such a a giant leap with each one of these films. I couldn't agree more, and... I, I, yeah, I mean, the, the reason that Boys in the Sand fascinates me is its history and what it did. 
um, how it opened sexuality up for a huge number of people at a time when it was just really starting. Uh, people were just starting to question sex and sexuality, and could it be part of popular entertainment? How would it be part? Um, you know, could we actually see sex on screen? Oh my God! It was, you know, it, this stuff had not been done before. It, 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 there was porn, but it wasn't in the same way. Um, and even the porn then, you know, Boys in the Sand, Bijou, Deep Throat, Opening Missy Beethoven, anything from the porno chic era is not the same thing as porn today. And I, I think it's important that people understand that. This is very different stuff. And Boys in the Sand is very much of its time and of its moment. And once you understand what it did and, and what it stood for, I think you look at it in a very different way than if you just watch it as, oh, yeah, it's this, uh, it's a really important gay film. And everybody kind of leaves going, well, wow, that was it, really? Because now we're so used to it. We're so used to the way porn is and what it is. And, it, you know, it's not supposed to have story. It's not supposed to be uh, take its time to get to the sex. You want, Nowadays, it's sex right away. That didn't happen um, in the 70s very much, especially with the stuff that people went to see in and that did very, very well um, and, you know, was was porno chic. So I won't pretend to be any sort of historical expert on, on porn or erotica or whatsoever. When I think about erotica at that time and earlier, I think about things like the nudie cuties and I think about the loops. I think about, you know, the the kind of underground when it comes to all this stuff. What was that world like when it came to gay erotica? What what was that like? I mean, it wasn't just... Because what we see, you know, when I watch something like uh, a Before Stonewall or something, it's a lot of, you know, uh, guys doing muscle poses yep. and it's maybe the films of Kenneth Anger, but what was that world like for people? Well, it was very sleazy for one thing. You didn't go see gay porn to watch a movie you you know you snuck in the theaters were dirty gross they had the lights on during the films because <laughs> they didn't want people to be you know touching each other so uh, the joke was is that you would go to these porn theaters the gay porn theaters there were only i think two in new york actually um and you could read the new york times no problem uh, because they kept the lights on so so high um you know there was always a chance you would get busted and the films they were showing were loops basically 10 minute uh usually without sound but they would play whatever music they had um during the 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 screening and Wakefield you know tells a wonderful story about uh which is probably in the interview that you did with him about how uh the whole idea of Boys in the Sand came about by watching one of these really awful porn movies with a bunch of friends one night it was not a pleasant experience the men in the films looked a little sleazy, worn out. The stories, what you know, the the situations were pretty much uh you know, the pizza boy and the surfer dude and you know, it just it made you feel kind of dirty going to see it. Um straight films weren't that different at the time either. It was, you know, a lot of grindhouse and and uh loops and, you know, beavers and beaver shorts and things like that. Uh so it it it's a very different world from what people think about today when they think about going uh, watching porn 
when you talk about those early loops and those early films and, and in the interview with Wakefield, he does talk about it a little bit, just sort of being turned off by this sort of sleaze factor. Do you think that it was um, a cultural issue that there was a lot of shame involved in sexuality, be it straight or gay? And that's just sort of what came out of uh, into the camera and out of the out of the lens of the projector kind of thing? Uh, yeah, I think that was some of it. But also you have to look at, you know, who was making this stuff now? People are going to jump on me, and they usually do, about you know, the people who know a lot about the history of a gay porn, for example. There were other filmmakers around the same time as Wakefield who were doing really interesting things, primarily on the West Coast. It all kind of happened at the same time. They, however, didn't get the sort of um, mainstream success that, that Wakefield did until a little bit later. Um, so that while there were people making interesting experimental kinds of things, most of the loops uh, were being done – um, to provide fodder for these really sleazy gay theaters, all of which were owned by the mob. So, you know, you had uh, somebody say, okay, well, you, I, need, I need a loop, and, you know, go out and make it. Here's a hundred bucks. Go, you know, find some sleazy uh, hooker, um, some rent boy, and uh, go to a motel room and, and shoot it. Uh, so I think a lot of it was just that, uh, yeah, there was shame. There was also, there were no depictions of beautiful men having sex and liking it in the loops there was a lot of you know people holding knives to their throats or you know uh, rape fantasies this kind of stuff it wasn't romantic it wasn't it didn't feel like sex was okay i think that was probably a similar for straight porn at the time too where it was just sort of naughty you weren't supposed to be seeing it you weren't supposed to be going to these theaters and watching this and that's the thing that i really like about boys in the sand you know watching it it is. Uh, it does have the feel that okay, these are loops because it's dealing with some of the right. same conventions. It's silent. They just seem like longer loop sections. And, and really, just to give people an idea of what the film is, it's three pieces really. The first one is on the beach. It's uh, actually, I guess, Wakefield's uh, lover at the time, Peter, and Casey Donovan, who comes out of the surf, and they have a scene together. And then there's uh, the second scene is sort of poolside. There's one guy and Casey Donovan again. And then the third scene is Casey Donovan. He's in this house. And then and another guy and then it's basically all three of these uh, scenes together but the thing that i find interesting about all these scenes and sort of how it plays together is that when i was thinking about it back a, a few days after i watched it is that those scenes unto themselves even though they are sex scenes and things like that uh, there really is kind of a narrative that plays between those three scenes that carries through the entire piece what I kind of saw was in the beginning sort of, you know, um, Casey Donovan coming out of the surf. And then by the end, by the by the third piece, it's about maybe the fantasy having a fantasy of his own. And the idea that maybe in the first sequence, at least my reading of it, he is the fantasy man. And by the last one, he's thinking of what would be a fantasy for him. So it's kind of interesting kind of how this uh, – you know, over this about 90 minutes, how everything kind of kind of moves. Oh, not even 90 minutes. It actually runs 70 some minutes because that was what they he knew they needed at least a little over 60 minutes, hopefully 70 minutes to have a feature film. So um, he really, you know, he, he had set his sights on making a feature and that had to be 70 minutes. So it's about 72 minutes, I think. So it, it actually goes by really quickly. But you're you're absolutely right. There is a. 
Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Narrative between the three Linda Williams, the, the uh, film professor at Berkeley. Uh, who has written several wonderful books about pornography, particularly hardcore, is is one of hers. And Screening Sex is the other one. Uh, she does a really long analysis of Boys in the Sand, talking about how uh, it the different parts look at different ways that gay men relate to each other. Uh, the second one, for example, is all about having a relationship and having a boyfriend. Because Casey writes away uh, to uh, the gay magazine, um, gets a pill in the mail, he throws it in the pool, suddenly this beautiful Italian man appears, and that becomes his lover. In the first one, it's it's very much about a fantasy of somebody coming out of the sea and being like the perfect lover for you. The third one is um, is also a fantasy, but it's more along the lines of uh, fantasy becoming reality by the end. Um, so it's it's a really interesting analysis that she does talking about what these different things would mean. Of course, Wakefield didn't think of any of this when he made it. He just made it. He knew what he wanted. That's what, what he did. He pointed the camera at people who wanted to have sex with each other, and that, I think, was the important thing for him. He wanted people who wanted each other and had not had sex before so that he could actually show them having sex for real. And that's what really comes across in, in uh, Boys in the Sand. And and it's funny screening it now for people who uh, are not used to watching porno in a theater with other people. It's a very difficult experience for them, for the most part. But what happens is, uh, and this has happened to me several times when I've been at screenings where we've shown it, um, and younger people will come up to me and say, you know what, this is the first time I've ever seen porn where the guys actually looked like they were enjoying it, that it wasn't a job for them, that there was actual passion between them. And I think that's what sets it apart, is it just it feels very authentic. Even if it's using fantasy and some of its storytelling, it feels very authentic. These people are having sex with each other and really enjoying it. The other thing that I find interesting, and this is what you were talking about, obviously viewing it with younger people, is the focus is not as much as what you would expect on the orgasm, Mm -hmm. you know, and specifically considering that it's okay. Oh, it's men. It doesn't matter if you're straight or gay. It's all about that. Right. But with this, it's like, like you were talking about Bijou where it takes 30 minutes before you ever get to that point, wherever you get to a sex scene with this, it's like everything builds and it's very slow and, and it's deliberate and it's very, um, it's very intimate in that way, as you were saying. And, and to me, I almost kind of felt like as I was watching it, that, um, it has these elements of like, um, like classical art, 
You know, when we talk about maybe like uh, like David um, or, um, you know, classical nudes and things like that. I mean, it's just very beautifully presented in terms of, of the body, but it's not presented in that fetish kind of way that I see most modern porn today. Both Wakefield and Peter, his lover, um, were very into art at the time. They were, you know, they collected modern art, but they would also go to museums. And Peter was really the art hound, and he taught Wakefield everything about art and and what was good visually, what wasn't good visually. Um, So I think you're right. There's a lot of that in there. There really isn't that kind of fetishization. I mean, we get loving very nice lingering kind of shots on the bodies and everything, but there isn't that look at how big this guy's cock is kind of long shots where you just stay on the sex organs. It's more about the entire body and about where they're at um, physically as well as with their heads rather than just the sex organs. And, you know, Jim, you had talked about how sleazy the early films were. And one of the things that I like about boys in the sand is that there is none of that sleaze and just having it all in you know in the broad daylight is just so wonderful that you get to see everything in this beautiful lighting you know just out there um, among nature at least with the first sequence you know it's really nice to see that kind of openness in every way yeah and and that had never been done before uh, for gay sex on the screen and Probably not a whole lot for straight sex at the time either. But that's what made it so revolutionary was people would go and see this film and go, oh, my God, you know, this is – this sex is beautiful. Uh, I think I can come out now. You know, that sounds really silly, but uh, Wakefield got so many uh, stories from people who said, I went to see Boys in the Sand, and I realized I could come out now because it was okay. Stray people went to see it because it was the thing to do, particularly in New York. And, um, and many of them saw gay sex for the first time ever. And it was presented as something beautiful. That was revolutionary at the time. It just wasn't done. And Wakefield didn't, I mean, he set out to make a beautiful porn film is what he says, but he really didn't think anybody would see it. He thought it would be just, you know, a a quick thing. And because he was kind of well-known being in the theater at the time, his friends would come, and that would be about it. They they really didn't expect the enormous success that it was. The thing that I, I find funny is when you hear other directors or other artists talk about the possibility of, of making porn film. And I remember John Waters said once that to him, making porn was like shooting open-heart surgery. <laughs> and, <laughs> and that this is so not like that. I mean, that is such a modern convention that um, it's become cliche and it's very sad. I mean, that that's why I think Mike and I on the show have focused a lot. When we, when we talk about adult film, we focus on things like Misty Beethoven, like Devil and Miss Jones and, and, and all of that stuff. Because that was the stuff that, as, as I always talked about, where the sex didn't stop the film. Because there are adult films where you have a narrative, the sex starts, it's like we got to take a break for 15 minutes and then we go back to the plot. And with things like this, both with Boys in the Sand and with Bijou, he's able to integrate all of this in and make it work and make it flow in such a way that it's, it's beautiful to watch and it doesn't feel, it doesn't feel tedious if 
like like I was saying, I mean, if you're a straight guy and you're watching it, it doesn't feel tedious. It's like, oh, when is this going to end? You know, or or even if you are gay, you know, like how I feel about sometimes when I'm watching modern adult film, I'm like, oh, man, this is horrible. You know, it's like either I want to watch just a short snippet of that because that's all I want or I want something that's really well integrated. And I, I think he just does a, a masterful job of, in, in both Boys in the Sand and Bijou. It's interesting because um, some audiences are really uh, – they find Boys in the Sand to be a bit tedious because there's a lot of walking, for example. Everybody seems to be doing a lot of walking. Um, and there's a lot of the scenery and the setup um, for the sex. And folks these days, particularly you know, people who are in their th- 20s and 30s who see it, aren't used to this at all. It's like, well, wait a minute. when I thought this was supposed to be porn. What's going on? This is kind of dull. It is, in a way, if that's what you're looking for. If you're looking for porn, you know, to get off, probably isn't going to work so well with Boys in the Sand or Bijou. Although, I don't know, Bijou still gets me all unbothered. I can't help it. But it's uh, it's strange. It's They're uh, very much of their time. I would like to think that once people have context around that time and what these films are, it makes them more palatable. It makes them easier to watch. I don't know. I mean, to me, I enjoy watching them just because I, I do know so much about what's going on and, and what's happened in the making of them and how they came about. So I'm maybe not such a good person to say whether or not they work today or not. Yeah, I would put Bijou right alongside some of my other favorite kind of theatrical porn, such as Behind the Green Door or Cafe Flesh, this whole idea of going to a theater and having this kind of theatrical experience, whether the main character is on a stage, part of the the program, or watching the program, kind of filling in as the, the viewer in that case. I'm right there with it. And that one really did keep my interest very much while I was watching it. And it was just such a, it's a trip. I mean, it is very fascinating to see the way that the story progresses. What's cool about Bijou is it raises more questions than it answers. By the time you're done with it, you're like, well, wait a minute. If this was supposed to be a club for women, how did he end up there? And how did they know? You know, and did that woman really die from the car wreck? Or, but she shows up in the film later. What's going on here? I think it still works really well today. And I've seen it with audiences, most particularly at the Berlin Porn uh, Film Festival, which did a retrospective of Wake's work last year. Watching the audience watching Bijou was just amazing. They were right with it every step of the way. It was great. It was the best audience experience I've seen with Bijou. You know, Boys in the Sand, they were kind of like, oh, yeah, okay, this is all right. Bible, they adored. Take One, they adored. Uh, Moving was probably a little less adored. But it's just crazy to watch them with an audience these days because they just don't know how to react. There's so much visual richness to it. And the, the the thing that I was thinking about with both of them, although, as you were saying, you know, Boys in the Sand isn't as visually rich and, and over the top, as you were saying, it gets kind of psychedelic and, and, and crazy a, a bit times at Bijou, but it works really well, is Mike, you had brought up earlier Kenneth Anger. And when I was watching it, I was thinking, you know, these are two guys that are about the same age, probably had similar references, you know, both being sort of gay men or, and, and things like that and having those kind of references to old Hollywood, to, um, you know, Broadway, stage and screen, things like that. And I just kind of felt a kinship between those two, although, of course, anger is much more into the occult and, and, and 
an odd symbolism at times than what uh, Wakefield Pool does with Bijou. But to me, they almost seem like uh, like like connected in some way. Well, sometimes I feel like there's a almost a self-loathing when it comes to Anger's work. Like sometimes it feels like his characters being punished for their desires. I don't know if you guys agree with that, but with Wake stuff, it feels like there's much more of a celebration of desires than a shame. I would say that's definitely true with fireworks, but you also consider fireworks is 1947. So, uh, but there are aspects of, of the triumph, you know, in, in fireworks, he does get punished, but in the end prevails. So there's this murkiness to it as well, where, um, you're kind of, you're kind of left questioning. And, and that was the thing I was thinking more of the later period, the stuff that he was doing in the sixties, just, you know, as we were talking about with sort of, um, visually rich images, you know, uh, multiple images, visual impositions, things like that. I think Kenneth Anger and, and Wakefield Pool are similar in some ways, but visually, yeah, uh, you're right. They do come from that. Uh, I mean, Wake was raised on the movies. He knows everything about movies. He watches movies constantly. Uh, between movies and Broadway musicals, you know, that's that's Wakefield's main brainscape when he was making those early films. So I think that really comes through. Yeah, definitely. Okay, we're going to take a break and play an interview with the director of Boys in the Sand after these important messages. Life's complicated. That's why Dazed and Convicted has health and lifestyle tips to really help you with those day-to-day dilemmas. The only way to stop the itching and burning and sedate the empty feeling is to wear a butt plug for an hour. Plus relationship hints. You know, Rafe tells a gal all she needs to know about a guy. Recipe ideas. Place thumbs, anus, scrotum, and testes in the freezer. Information on local community services you may not know about. A lot lizard is quite simply a prostitute who works truck stops and rest stops. And health advice you can trust. Lesbian humping with a man in the room running a camera and adding his man splash to the festivities can, can help prevent brass cancer. Health and lifestyle on the Dazed and Convicted podcast at dazedandconvicted.com. It's the Dive Quarterly Women's Social Club. It's not on my phone. Well, he I'll tell you that. It's not on, on fucking my phone. My phone. Now, the ball uh, was in you your should've... court. No, I fucking sent you a text back. You yeah, but I never got prick. it. What do you want me to tell you? I never and got you it. you call to confirm. God, aren't you tired of this NPR feel-good radio, wishy-washy, everyone learns something and feels great about it crap? Not me. I get ones that want to fuck up their ass, and I like to do that. What I present to you is chaos. And I get ones who want to be slapped around a bit, and I do that too. And you will laugh. It's a comedy show. It's a comedy show where you will actually laugh. I would love to lick your pony vagina. It's a bad costly women's social club. All right, well, to be blunt with you, I'm thinking that we should contact the police because it sounds like you have some really nasty situation going on. I'm sorry? We want to pray that two people we don't like get cancer. Why would you pray for someone to get cancer? Because we don't like So if you hate podcasts and you're sick of all the shit that's out there, listen to my show, The Bi-Quarterly Women's Social Club. I'm the host, Chris Wilding. Facebook.com slash bi-quarterly or bqwsc.com where you can find out everything about us, listen to episodes, and get our live show schedule. Hope to see you there. Seacrest out. Have a good night, motherfucker. <laughs> they're 12 miles of bad road, and now they have a microphone and their own show. It's the Daily Grindhouse Podcast, the official podcast of dailygrindhouse.com. Starring G. You tell that bitch who sent you here. 
How sorry I am I can no longer be her friend. And the man called Perry. I'm the one that killed Monday, whooped Tuesday, and put Wins in the hospital. All the birds did a tell five did not the birds Sarah Jones son. Reviewing the hits and the hidden from the world of exploitation cinema and beyond. Featuring exclusive cast and crew interviews. Past guests include John Carpenter, Robert Forster, Brian Trenchard Smith, but still no Steve Gutenberg. <clears throat> well, uh, we'll get him someday. We promise. I mean, we promise. The Daily Grindhouse Podcast, available on iTunes, Stitcher Smart Radio, Podomatic, and of course at dailygrindhouse.com slash podcasts. The Daily Grindhouse Podcast. Tough films for the rough crowd. Got the goddamn message? Let's go to work. You know, you worked in many areas before film. You know, it was music and dance and art and things like that. And how do you feel that those various disciplines, various things that you worked on, helped influence your work as a filmmaker? Well, you used the right word, discipline. You have to have discipline in, in all of them. If you, if you want to have any fun and if you want to have any success, that's the most important thing. But I think, you know, your experience keeps developing, even though you might change what you're doing or, you know, your point of view. It all, it all comes from the very beginning. It just keeps developing. So uh, it, everything uh, is influenced by everything you've been and everything you're going to be, actually, too. You were in New York around the time of the underground film movement. Did you get to see much of that? Uh, I saw quite a bit. You know, I, I saw a lot of Warhol's things. I had seen, uh, when I was traveling with Ballet Russe, I had seen a lot in, in um, Los Angeles. I saw some of um, uh, Pat Rocco's things, which were, you know, gay-oriented, and they were very very softcore and very... Uh, uh, not sophomoreish because they weren't, but they were, they were like my films without the sex. <laughs> so. Do you feel that any of that um, underground art kind of influenced your own work? Absolutely, I was uh, I was very much into um, into the art scene and, and participated and went to galleries quite often. And um, I, of course, I went to see Pig Flamingos when it first opened, and I sort of kept up with things like that and and the Ridiculous Theater, Charles Ludlam. I liked avant-garde things, and um, I helped. If I liked them, I helped, you know, establish them by taking my friends who had never seen things like that. I took uh, Michael Bennett and three other people to see Charles Ludlam's Bluebeard, which was brilliant, and um, and uh, tried to, you know, to support it in other ways other than just going and say I liked it. You know, I tried to, to expand the audience by you know, telling people and taking them there. And um, so that was my involvement, was basically as a spectator. When I, when I made the, the film The Bible, I even talked to Charles Ludlam and, and uh, Lola Pashlensky about being in it. I wanted them to be David and Bathsheba, and we had a, a long meeting. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, Lil. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. About it. And in my loft, we sat and talked and drank tea and smoked grass <laughs> and talked about it. And as it turned out, he wanted just full, total control. He said he'd love to do it, but he wanted control of everything. And I, at that point, I couldn't uh, give it up. So, but um, he was, uh, his whole theatrical company was excellent. I mean, they didn't do a bad show. Then I got into, like, lip sync uh, this later, you know, in, in, in my life, lip sync and, and uh, I went to see her do, she lip synced the entire Joan Crawford movie, uh, Harriet Craig, I think was the name of the movie. I was just sat there with my mouth hanging open. First of all, that she could memorize that whole script and do it, you know, while they played the sound, the soundtrack, as well as do actions on stage, so it's, it's quite a bit underground, it's well worthwhile and well looking into You were in New York in the late 1960s, and I was wondering if you remember when Stonewall happened and how maybe that affected you and your friends and people you knew. I'll tell you, when Stonewall happened, I was in uh, Maryland directing Mickey Rooney and George M. And um, in fact, that's the same time Judy Garland died. We were in rehearsal for it. He even invited me to Judy's funeral, but I had so much to do I couldn't I couldn't leave because I directed and choreographed the show, uh, and we were you know getting ready to open. So Mickey left for the day, and uh, uh, so I really missed the impact of being in New York when that happened. But I certainly didn't miss you know the, uh, the undercurrent that uh, happened after you know and the. Um, it's not really undercurrent because it wasn't. Well, I guess it might have been. It was very subtle at first, you know, after the big flare-up. Um, and uh, then it sort of like died down. A little bit later, someone blew on the embers and it, you know, it really caught fire. I made Boys in the Sand as a direct result of that because of um, the, uh, the way I felt about gay people and the way they were treated and I'd never been in the closet, so I really can't say I came out when I put my name on the film, but um, I, I actually did. I think I'm probably one of the first ten people to come out publicly, uh, especially in the press. It definitely had an effect on me. Uh, I, I got tired of people, you know, not only looking down on, on the, the, the type of sex that we had, but they only did that, you know, at the front because... Uh, actually, the straight the straight people followed followed our lead, and they always have, you know, in in fashion and in in taste and um, in our little uh, idiosyncrasies as far as sex is concerned. And uh, uh, right after the leather scene became very big, suddenly, you know, straight people were going down to the leather chest and and buying harnesses and chaps and and all sorts of sex toys. So. It's very strange. It was a strange dichotomy that, you know, what we did in bed was not too good, but what we did, you know, socially was uh, was what uh, they wanted to obtain for themselves. 
they sent my take on it. I was going to ask you on that, you know, why do you think it is that when you talk about, you know, various things of culture, it seems that there was that innovation and it was that innovation as well with, with you with Boys in the Sand in some ways that eventually it's, you know, it, it crossed over into, I guess, straight or, or mainstream in, in some way. What, why do you feel that a lot of this stuff uh, did come out of, out of, you know, gay culture or the gay community? I think the fact that I, I put um, good-looking men uh, in a clean situation and uh, a beautiful uh, scenic locale, um, and, and I used people who really wanted to have sex with each other. I didn't say, you know, no, you fuck him and you do this. And I didn't ask him in the beginning if I could use four-letter words. <laughs> but um, uh, I didn't, you know, ask them or tell them to do specific things that, and I didn't ever do that in any of my movies until much later when I needed things. But um, generally, I, I just uh, matched them up in my head how I thought they would react to one another. First, I found out if they, if they really were, you know, attracted to the person. And then I just let it happen. And I was like a voyeur standing there with a the camera. I told someone recently that I never realized, but I was really participating because... Through the camera and, and the zoom lens, I could choose what I wanted to show, and so therefore I was a third participant in their their sex act. Because uh, instead of you know going on the, the crotch, I might go up to someone's face and and shoot what was happening with their expression and and um, the ecstasy or the agony or whatever is, was there. You know, I I was able to choose and. Uh, especially the first scene that I filmed with my lover and uh, another person. And uh, that's why it never affected me. You know, people said, how could you film your lover having sex with someone else? And uh, I never realized it, but that's why, because I was actually participating. Uh, I didn't realize it at the time, but uh, I was. And um, I, let, uh, I let my eye just, go where it wanted to go and didn't uh, give too much thought to it and uh, let the people do what they wanted to do and captured it. And that's the thing that I think made it made it uh, crossover is because there were two people being emotional with one another and it wasn't just a sex act. There was something behind it as well as the, uh, you know, the trappings and the dressings around it and, and um, the art, the artsiness of it. And, um, blatantly on that way, but I did it on purpose to make it um, palatable for us. Uh, and I didn't make it for a straight audience. I made it for gay people, you know. But because of uh, the intent and gay people saw it uh, and, and recognized that, it made it uh, a success. And, and straight people were talking about it and, and um, uh, coming to see it and standing in line. And, and uh, it was... It was really amazing to me. I mean, my mouth is, is still open to this day at, at uh, the success of that movie and the acceptance that it got. Uh, I will say it's been short-lived because uh, I always say once a pornographer, always a pornographer, once it, you know, it goes back, it goes back to me personally. They might like the film and what it does, but, but I get the brunt of it because I'm the pornographer. I'm the one who put it on film and put it out there for everyone to see. So um, that hasn't changed too much. You know. uh, 
in making this uh, documentary, uh, we had a terrible time raising money because um, of, you know, the pornography element. Uh, we're still having trouble getting it shown at some festivals because of uh, my reputation as a pornographer. And um, some people uh, didn't even want to contribute to the film, uh, even though they were good friends of mine. You know, they didn't want their name on the film, and they didn't want to participate in it in that way. So it's it's uh, it's still there, but it, as far as being a crossover, it definitely was a crossover film. And Bishu, which was my second film, was equally as crossover. I had, uh, now the women's organization showed Bijou, and they showed Bijou at the uh, uh, Designers Council Conference in Aspen, and... Um, I can't think of that guy's name was a critic. Uh, Brendan Gill. Brendan Gill wrote a whole article and did a lecture on um, Bijou and um, The Devil and Miss Jones and uh, using those two films as uh, as a subject matter. So um, it, it lasted for a good two years with me, you know. And, and of course, then I made my infamous Bible. <laughs> so, um, but that, uh, that again was... Uh, the people who saw it talked about it, and and, and others who didn't see it because uh, they were shocked that I I dare put the Bible in it to a pornographic film, but they didn't know that it wasn't a pornographic film. So, but uh, it's it's funny; it goes in cycles. You know, I don't think they're making movies the way I made them uh, anymore. It's become uh, business, and uh, uh, even uh, you know, gay for pay and. And all those things have contributed to it, and they're very formulaic now. And there's still some, you know, some people making uh, uh, movies with uh, a little ambition to them and a little, little thought behind it. I was curious about films before Boys in the Sand. It's kind of my understanding that you weren't really happy with what was being term, uh, offered in terms of uh, erotic film for gays at the time. W- what were those like? Well, the the only thing we got that was I thought erotic, are, are you know like uh, Chant d'Amour and and uh, and the, the really artistic uh, experimental films. But as far as pornography goes, they were shot. They were called One Day Wonders, and they would hire people and and usually also you know Sunset Boulevard or Eighth Avenue or or somewhere and and pay them a hundred dollars and put them with somebody else that maybe had done one before, and so it wouldn't be a total, you know, uh, a loss in case something happened. But uh, they just did it in some back room or did it in some toilet somewhere, or um, uh, that's why they call them black foot films or uh, black socks films because um, they usually wore their socks. They didn't even take off their socks because the floors where they shot them were so dirty. It sounds very seedy, and it really was. But uh, they made a lot of money, and they didn't do any, uh, very little editing, and no music. They played uh, just, you know, it, it, it could be anywhere from uh, rock and roll to, you know, jazz to even spiritual, so they didn't care. They just put on music to, to fill up the void. But um, they weren't, they were, they were really, you know, they were really to masturbate to to get you hot, and they worked uh, to make your brain think at all, uh, your brain work. The first time I went out with some friends socially and sat in a theater, 
and saw um, pornography. It was so bad, and we were all so bored, and because we were all friends, we weren't in the sexual mood, so we couldn't get off on that, so there was nothing else there for us. And that's when I said, you know, there's got to be something, you know, that we can do or anybody can do to make this more palatable and make it fun and make it, you know, pretty and make it uh, make you feel good so you didn't feel sleazy, you know, when you when you left. And uh, that's really why I made Boys of Sand. I just wanted to experiment, see if it was possible, if it uh, if it could be captured, you know, and not uh, and and maintained once you once the projector was off, if you you know you, you could maintain something or, or, or hold on to something from uh, from the film, some feeling, and basically a feeling of, of I hate to say pride. That's, that's a little too early for that, but um, not feeling sleazy and not feeling like you've done something bad and dirty. wanted to ask you about uh, Casey Donovan and working with him and also your friendship off the set. Oh, Casey Donovan probably was one of the dearest people I think I ever met in my life. Um, he was so contrary to, you know, to what he was. <laughs> he was like two people. Uh, he was definitely a sex fiend. I mean that I will I will go by. He loved his sex, but he he was so clean cut. He was uh, well educated. He was a school teacher at one point. Um, one of the sweetest men I've ever known in my life. Would do anything in the world for you. Uh, we had a very special relationship. And although I didn't call him and say let's go to a movie, or it wasn't that kind of relationship. It uh, it was totally a professional relationship. Uh, except when we did work together, it was like we had known each other all our lives. And um, it seems like if I were in trouble and I needed some money, this is later on after, you know, this was like a couple years after Boys Was Stand, and, and uh, I needed some money and had to make a movie to get some cash flow coming, suddenly Cal would appear. And it wasn't because he heard I needed to make a movie, but he would just appear and I'd say, hey, let's make another movie. And he'd say, okay, or if then Cal were available and, and he was doing a, a play in Los Angeles and came down to see me in San Francisco, and I said, hey, let's, I have to make a movie for some cash flow. Do you want to make another movie? He said, yes. So that's the way we sort of fell in. And, and um, we had one date. <laughs> it's very funny. He called me up and he said, I think it's time we went out. And he had tickets to... Um, opening night uh, for a play that Christopher Reeve was doing in New York at the Circle of the Square. And uh, he said, I have opening night tickets and I want to take you. And I said, fine. So we went to see the play. And then we went to the, uh, the, the uh, opening night party afterwards. And, you know, with all these big stars and things around. And Kate Burton was at our table. And, and um, it ended up, Cal and I were in the hallway with the bus boys. <laughs> having our cake and coffee out in the hallway with the bus boys and the waiters. So, um, but it was a it was a wonderful night. We had a great time together. But that was only our only official day. We spent uh, time together at, at my at my house in my apartment. And uh, when he was going with Tom Tryon, and I was living in San Francisco, he called me and he said, "You know, I've never had anything for you from you," but he said. Would you mind if I brought Tom over to your house and um, 
and you showed him the movies. He's never seen the movies. And uh, I said, no, not at all. And he brought Tom over, and I had the projector all set up and the films all out. And I said, you know, you've got my house, and you go and you, you know how to work the projector, and you enjoy yourself. And I left them there the whole weekend, and they spent the weekend together at my house in San Francisco. And I took off for the baths and got up the next day and went to visit a friend. And, and when I came back, uh, we had a nice dinner, and they left. So we had that kind of, you know, very casual relationship. And he, he would call me and say, well, I just made a film for Jerry Douglas, and we want to come, and, and we we're going to do a screening. And uh, so it was that kind of relationship. But working with him was unbelievable. I mean, just he knew what I wanted before I even said it. And it's like spoiled me, you know. That's why we work so well together. We were like one brain, you know, in two bodies. But uh, I have nothing but good things to say about him uh, at the end when he was, heavy into meth, and he made a, a very ugly film. That's all, the only thing I can say about it. I had to turn it off halfway watching it. It was not easy to watch, and um, I think he died, oh, I think like six weeks after I saw the film. But uh, he came to see me like two weeks before he died, and he looked wonderful. I didn't even know he was sick, and because um, he looked so terrible in that movie that he did. That, and he knocked on my door, and I was living on uh, in, on 42nd Street and 5th Avenue and I had a nice little apartment and knocked on my door and uh, I opened the door and he came in and um, he needed some money so I gave him a couple hundred dollars and uh, that was like two weeks later I heard that uh, he had passed and uh, on the way down to uh, I think down to South Florida I was very upset by it of course but uh, especially you know having seen him two weeks prior and he didn't look like he was uh, ravaged at all by the disease. I was curious. We've talked a little bit about the differences between West Coast and East Coast, and the documentary focuses a lot on the reaction that Boys in the Sand had in New York. How did the film play in other regions? It played just as well. I don't think it had the, uh, the social impact uh, in San Francisco or Los Angeles like it did in New York because uh, I wasn't there and uh, we didn't have, I didn't have my, I had sort of a name in the theater because I'd been in the theater and done, I think, eight to ten With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Broadway shows and was choreographing and was Joe Layton's associate. And uh, so I had a name among, you know, the theater people. Uh, I wasn't famous. People didn't know me if they, you know, 
they weren't in the business, but everyone who was in the business knew my name, had either worked with me or heard about me. or So that, that helped um, the porno sheet get going because suddenly, you know, um, Jerry Robbins heard, you know, that's a very funny story I'd love to tell, was Jerry Robbins called up Leonard Bernstein. Leonard Bernstein's manager told me this, and he said, Lenny, you've got to go see this movie. He said, it's just beautiful. He said, and the music is wonderful, and it, believe it or not, it has a story. (laughs) I always got a big kick out of that, but, but we had, you know, celebrities come to see our movie, and of course we didn't uh, we didn't put it in the paper like Deep Throat did when it opened a year after Boys of Sand did. Um, they uh, they had a press agent who really you know went for the throat and and had someone taking pictures of Mike Nichols when he went in to see the movie, and then in the Daily News it would say Mike Nichols uh, went to see Deep Throat you know last night, and, and I mean all the power to them. You know I wish we'd done it, but. <laughs> We we didn't, but we had the, we had the same the same group, and uh, I think uh, Deep Throat could never have done what they did if we hadn't done what we did first. And they actually took our template, and they they followed the same the same things that we did, and that's very simple. I just said to my partner when we decided we were going to make it into a feature big film, they were going to treat it with respect. And we're going to treat it like a real movie. We're going to have screenings. We're going to invite the critics. Uh, we're going to, uh, you know, put it in a clean place. Uh, we're going to have uh, ads. We're going to put ads in the paper in the New York Times and treat it like a real film and give it the respect that anybody would give their film. You know, it's within our, within our budget, within our means. And um, as I said before, because of my name in the theater, uh, we did it at Christmas time. We released it three days after Christmas on the 28th of December. And there were, you know, theater parties and Christmas parties. And, and the word at those parties was, did you hear what Wakefield Poole did? You know, did you hear he made a dirty movie? And blah, 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 blah. And that sort of spread. And people were curious. Uh, mainly because, you know, they knew of my background in, in ballet and theater and and uh, it uh, it really made it it really made it cross over. I don't take credit for that, except in our original concept of treating it like a real movie. And we did get reviewed. You know, we got reviewed by Variety and the New York Times. And it's the first time ever any pornographer has gotten a review of their film. And uh, they weren't always the greatest. I remember one thing in Variety: uh, the guy was trying to be subtly very nasty. You know, thinking he was going to, you know, hurt us, but he said the casting looked like it was done done from Dial a Hustler. Well, that just we put that in the paper as a tagline, you know, and that made people want to go see it. And uh, it's a cinema verite. You think sometimes the camera's going to get into the action. I mean, we put quotes in the paper. Uh, we changed the quotes about every four days, and the people who caught on to it started. Looking at looking for the ads just to see what our quote was for the week, so that helped. We we kept sustaining that, you know, excitement and that interest by um, by pushing it a little bit further. And one of the greatest uh, quotes that we use is 
are no more clauses. And that was the that was the thing I think that really did it. It it, it made me proud because that meant, you know, we were out there and we were gay and and people who saw my name up there knew that I was proud of being gay and also of doing the movie. So I've had so many people tell me in all these years, in the 45 years since the movie opened, that I changed their life, that, you know, just seeing your name on a theater marquee across the street from City Center in New York, you know, knowing that you were gay and there's a, a gay movie playing right there with a name on the marquee, you know, uh, gave some people some sort of, I guess some sort of glimmer of hope that there was there was uh, something out there and there was someone like them. You touched on it in reference to Deep Throat. And, you know, as you said, you know, Boys in the Sand was a year before and set a lot of the template for what they would do going forward. And then Deep Throat had the legal trouble. They had that legal case and there were people get busted and things like that. And I was wondering, did you ever face anything like that? Because obviously yours was also an erotic film, porn film. And not only that, but at the time, you know, just being gay was almost enough to get you arrested in a lot of places. Oh, it was. Not only making pornography, but being gay. You know, the the the, um, the Stonewall is a prime example of that. I mean, once Stonewall happened, it didn't stop the raids. Also, I think because they did they did sensationalize their film, and they got so much um, publicity. They they you know they were in columns and everything. That I, and I think that uh, it brought the attention to it more. And also, uh, they were. They were backed by the mob, or you know, some. I hate to say that, but uh, it is true, and it's it's, it's been uh, it's been out there in the movie Inside Deep Throat. So I guess I shouldn't be afraid to say it, but um, that had a, a lot to do with it. And I think the government was going after them. I never had any trouble, believe it or not. I had trouble once. They they uh, stopped a screening in Texas of moving, and uh, they confiscated the film and uh, closed down the theaters that day, and the next day it was open again. But that's the only trouble I had. The trouble I had was having my film stolen and ripped off by theater owners and, and uh, once again, the, the people in the so-called uh, gay mob, you know, that uh, ran the, the small little gay theaters. Uh, at the time we opened Boys in the Sand, we four-walled it. We would go to every major city. There were only 10 theaters we could play. So the money we had to make were in those 10 theaters. So we went there ourselves and someone sat in the box office and we sold the tickets and took in the money and then we paid the theater rental and then that's how we, you know, kept from uh, losing all, all our shirts. But um, we couldn't, you know, keep track of the film and naturally, you know, um, the film was shut down and overnight the projectionist would take it to lab and have it duped, and suddenly it would be playing in a small town where they didn't have a, a big gay theater, but they had these storefront theaters with the quarter machines, and, and they would have small little, you know, things, and they would they started charging, you know, the same thing we did, $5, and they played in all these little small towns, but we played basically like Boston, Chicago, New York, Los Angeles, Houston, Dallas, um, Washington D.C. As a matter of fact, and, and there were there were a few, you know, like ten ten established gay theaters that were real theaters, 
and uh, the rest were all like storefronts and, and little small theaters, you know, little art houses that had gone into um, um, disrepair and they had taken them over and uh, they were filthy places and they were sort of like the, the movies that they used to show. But they had been around for years, but they suddenly had a, a product that, uh, that, you know, was built an audience. The main thing we did was we also, after we opened the two movies, we decided that so many people would write us and say, when are you going to play Des Moines, you know, or when are you going to play Cleveland? And, and, of course, there were no gay theaters there, and uh, we couldn't go and you know, spend our life, you know, uh, doing you know, one movie to open it in a different theater. So we decided we would make 8-millimeter versions so that all these gay people who had heard so much about it all over the, well, it turned out to be all over the world, but we were talking all over the United States, could order the full film and see it and pay $99 and own it. And they would have it as long as they wanted to keep it. And we, uh, we sent out little things. We put ads in all the, the gay publications and the magazines and the newspapers. And we made all our money off of that as opposed to the theater runs. We made money in the theater runs, so we had to spend a lot on advertising and manning the theater, but we had nothing but profit from these 8mm things, and it it made the movie notorious. I mean, it was there were not many people at that time uh, who did not hear Boys the Sand. And uh, we, even, uh, we even had John Gielgud come up to our office and pick up a a copy of Boys and Sand because we couldn't mail it to him in England. We couldn't uh, send it to, you know, customs. So he came up and uh, I had um, Hugh Hefner ask for 60-millimeter print for his collection and Sammy Davis, Jr., and we accommodated them. You know, we we thought, well, they're not going to rip us off. <laughs> so we, we sold a couple of... Uh, 16 millimeters, and I'm glad we did because now we're in the process of of um, restoring the movies from the from the negatives. And one of the negatives was in such bad shape that we had to rely on a print that I had sold to someone, and it hadn't been shown but a couple of times in the projector. So it was pristine, and we were able to to do a new negative from that uh, from that print. So. Um, I'm glad we did that. You know, we, we we had great discussions, Marvin Schulman, who's my partner, about whether we should sell 16 millimeter prints because we knew that uh, you know the films were being ripped off and uh, you know shown other places. But we decided, no, it, it's got to be good. You know, they're going to show them to to uh, an elite crowd, and that's only going to help our reputation and. Uh, you know, spread the uh, word of the movie. So we seem to make all the right choices uh, early on. It's interesting talking to you about all of this and, and everything that came out around the film, the impact that it had. And we've talked about on the show before, sort of important films such as yours of that era of the 1970s. And how these are important, you know, artistically, socially, and we believe that they deserve the same amount of respect that Hollywood features get when it comes to something like archiving them and preserving them for something like um, the Library of Congress. And I was just wondering if you think that 
you know, maybe someday you would receive the call and they would say, yes, we would like to put uh, Boys in the Sand in this collection because, you know, we think that's kind of important. Think that people should actually kind of advocate for that kind of thing. Do you think that that would be something that you would like to see? I think it would be wonderful. But um, I, uh, I'm i not even getting the respect that I deserve, and I hate to say that openly, from the gay community. Um, people seem to have forgotten my input into gay liberty, you know, into, into liberation of, of gay people. I played a, played a large role in gay liberation and how people felt about themselves. And it's sort of forgotten now. You know, these the gay publications were put out, you know, the hundred, the hundred top gay people that ever lived, you know, as far as helping the movement. And I'm never mentioned. Um, so I don't think that... Uh, and you have to, I have to remember, too, I lost my fan base with the, with the AIDS epidemic. Most of the people who uh, were of my generation, um, who were uh, around when the movies happened, and experienced the excitement and, and everyone talking about them at parties and, and at the baths and, and, you know, feeling good about it and able to talk about I would see Boys in the Sand as opposed to, to not saying, you know, oh, I would see a porno movie last night, you know. And they were proud that they went to see it and they wanted to talk about it and it was something they could talk about besides, you know, the size of someone's penis or, or what, pardon me, or whatever, but... Um, that would be great, I think. If I mean, I'm excited now that um, uh, the uh, vinegar, vinegar, um, I can't think now. They're they're restoring all my films, um, and uh, the Bible is, is is just been released, and uh, they're going to do one of my films every two months. Uh, next will be Boys uh, Bijou, I think, uh, will be out in March totally restored and uh, the Bible looks as good as it did when it was first done it is so beautiful and uh, uh, they're doing Bishu then they're doing Boys in the Sand and they're then they're doing Moving and then I don't know what's coming after that but they're the, the next four releases Vinegar Syndrome is the name of the company and it's a wonderful company that Jim Tushinsky who made my documentary uh, I met the guy in New York just several months ago, and Jim had done some remastering of the films. So they were remastered about four years ago, five years ago, because he needed the you know, footage for the documentary. So he just took my films and remastered them, which is different from restoring them. Remastering is, is done all electronically and, and uh, with video, but... Uh, uh, Vinegar Syndrome goes back to the original negative and tries to, you know, do just like they do in Hollywood when they restored Lawrence of Arabia or, or Funny Girl or all those movies. They go back and, and they restore them. And so they, uh, they've taken on four of my films uh, to restore. And, and um, I think that that's going to, uh, you know, to maybe get my name circulated again and and people who know about about me and the movies, uh, the movies still talked about, you know, in articles and and um, but uh, I think it's going to be a whole new you know rebirth of the movies. I hope so. Uh, 
they deserve their place in history. Uh, I firmly believe that. From your conversation, it's interesting because uh, you talk about how maybe younger people who are, who are gay and in part of the the current you know atmosphere, the current culture of things, and how things have progressed, that maybe they don't understand sort of the history of how things got to be the way they are. I mean, um, you know, you being the age that you are, uh, I don't want to give away your age, but um, you know, did, 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 right. <laughs> But when you, um, you know, when when you think over that time, did you imagine that things would be where they are today in that way? And do you think that younger people don't understand sort of all of the steps that got it to where it is today? Uh, no, um, I think the thing that's interesting about it is uh, I made, uh, when I made my movie, I wanted you to be able to go and sit down in a theater and watch the movie not have any purient uh, thoughts in your head about having sex with the person sitting next to you necessarily, but to watch the movie and enjoy it. And there's, there's laughs. There's some laughs in my movies. There certainly is romance. And there's, there's hot sex. And there's, there's uh, there are little tiny, you know, clever things that are in the movie to keep your interest and to keep some suspense going. And um, I think... Um, Today, people don't go and see movies and corner movies in theaters anymore. It's all home. It's all, you know, at, in their home. And so the impact is not the same. Um, they, um, they did a Wakefield Pool Comes Back to Fire Island a couple of years ago. They invited me out to Fire Island for a weekend. And so, like, an honor. And, and um, they did a screening at Boys in the Sand as a, as a benefit for. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. The medical thing now in Whitehall, they now have an apartment in the back they built into this new community center for a doctor. And they now have a doctor full time during the season on Fire Island before you had to go and get on a and go over to Safeville to get any medical treatment. So that's what this was a benefit for. And um, they called me out there, and um, I went out, and they treated me just beautifully. And we had two screenings. They charged $50 a ticket and uh, $75 if you wanted to go to the cocktail party. They sold out both screenings, which was very exciting. They raised a lot of money. And when I talked afterwards, I said, you are why I made this movie. You're sitting here, men and women together, gay and straight, 
and you're watching a porno film and you're enjoying it. You must have enjoyed it because you all stood up and clapped. So I've accomplished what I set out to do, and that's true. And that doesn't happen too much anymore. Uh, only once in a while they'll do a benefit, and they'll I'll go, and there'll be people there just sitting watching the movie. I did one at the Ace Hotel, and they did one in the basement, and they did a screening, and it was for some organization. And it's the same thing. They were all very young people, and I'm talking about in their early 20s, and straight and gay, and they sat and watched the movie, and they laughed in all the right places, and they, they weren't at all put off by it. And they all came up to me afterwards and, and you know, really just, I, I stayed there for about an hour talking to people after the screening. So it still has that effect when you sit down in a theater and watch it uh, with, with people. But now there's not that, that many uh, opportunities to do that. So um, it still works like it did when it was first, first shown. When, when uh, before we opened the movie, we had we had uh, about six screenings. One of them, Robert L. Green, who was the fashion designer of Playboy, I mean the fashion editor of Playboy, uh, gave a party at his house a brunch on a Sunday, and uh, invited all New York's top models, male and female, gay and straight, to his uh, house for um, a screening and for a brunch, and. That was the initial kickoff, and of course, I mean, what better audience to have than a bunch of models, you know? <laughs> and they have a, they do a lot of talking, a lot of gossiping, and they are very current with what's going on. So that again, it was a mixed group, again just sitting watching the movie. Now Jack DeVoe, who, who is uh, a friend of my partner's, Marvin Schulman's. After we made Boys in the Sand, he said, well, if you could do it, I can do it. So he started, he made some films and started his own film company. And he won, his, his um, uh, idea was to get people hot and make them want to go to the bathroom and have sex and cruise each other. And that was the way he measured his success of his films. And it worked that he succeeded in doing what he set out to do. But I thought it was funny, and I even told Marvin, I said, we have two different um, ways of uh, measuring our success. And mine was that people sat in their seats and watched the movie, and his was that they got up, moved around, and cruised. So, um, you know, it wasn't all cut and dry. They were different. And once I made Boys in the Sand, we had a lot of people start making pornography and a lot of good filmmakers Toby Ross, Jay Bryan, um, Joe Gage. Um, there, it became suddenly, well, as Jack DeVos said, if he can do it, I can do it. You know, anyone who had, and now these are people that not weren't necessarily filmmakers, but gay people who had some sort of sensibilities and, and you know, had worked in, in playing with um home movies and things like that. Maybe even, you know, film some of their their own, you know, sex things and at parties and things. But suddenly they were all expressing themselves and making real movies, not loops. And there was a period there, and I'd say it was the golden age 
of gay pornography was between Boys in the Sand and like the end of Joe Gage's trilogy. That's sort of like when it all sort of, sort of like started winding down. Uh, it was a good, a good four, four year, five year, you know, run. There was uh, quite a bit of experimentation in these movies, you know, they, uh, with, with techniques and uh, all sorts of things. So it was, a, it was a great movement, and I'm proud to have started it. You know, Joe Gage is still making movies, you know, and he's a wonderful filmmaker. So I hate to say he's lowered his standards a little, but the audience has, you know, has changed. So he's, he's a businessman. He's going to make movies for his audience. And um, I didn't make movies for an audience. I made, I created my audience. I wanted to create an audience. So I did make movies for an audience, but uh, it was, there was no audience there. I had to create it. So that, uh, that sort of brings all those filmmakers into the picture. I was really impressed with the experimental as well as erotic nature of Bijou and especially a lot of the um, different process shots that you were doing in there. How did you achieve the multi-screen process in Bijou? Well, this will tell you how experimental I was. Uh, I had no special effects in Bijou at all. The only special effects is at the very end when I did a freeze frame and then had the credits roll. That was the only thing I used special effects for. The rest was all done in camera. Um, all those um, uh, things that he, he saw, like the, the big foam sculpture that he passes in Bijou, uh, was a Richard Chamberlain sculpture that sat on my coffee table. And I filmed that and, and rewound the film, ran the film backwards and, and uh, blocked off the, the lens. And then I had Bill Harrison in a black room, because black doesn't photograph, and just told him, now walk, walk towards me, Bill, and, and look around, and you see this big thing, and reach up with your hand, and almost extend your arm as full as you can extend it, and touch it, and then pull your hand away, because it's wet, and then feel the moisture in your hand. Well, there was nothing there. He was brilliant. He was a brilliant actor, and he was able to, to trust me enough that I could talk him through, and I said, don't do it as soon as I say it. Let it hit for a second, and then do what I've told you to do, and then we'll continue on. Because, uh, and that's what he did. I, it was like real silent movies. The director was sitting in a chair telling him what to do, and they did it and reacted. So um, I did a, the multimedia section. I did screen tests of all the people that came in. I had so many people after Boys in the Sand said, oh, I want to be in a movie, and, and blah, 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 blah. And then, of course, I'd call them and say, you know, come in for a screen test. And, and then half of them pulled out because, you know, they were really just talking before. They were intrigued, but they really didn't want to do it. So the ones that did come in, I made screen tests of, and they were all the same. I had a, a horn chair uh, covered in black leather, and I had the black room again. And uh, I lit the chair, and I had each person come in. I said, I want you to come in and just be very relaxed, and then I want you to take off your clothes, and uh, you can talk to me while you're doing all this. It's very natural, and then I would like you to masturbate. And that's what I had them all do. And I filmed it, and then when I decided who I was going to use, I 
had all their screen tests from the time they took off their clothes and t- up until their ejaculation. So what I did was I had I rented six 16 millimeter projectors. I had a very uh, large apartment in New York. I had, uh, in fact, all of BC was shot in my apartment in New York. I had 24 by uh, 16, 18 by 24 living room, and it was 24 foot ceilings. And I had a balcony that, uh, from my bedroom, that opened windows opened down into the living room. You could look into the living room, so it was a perfect place to shoot. So um, I rented 16 projectors. I set them up side by side and had a big screen, and I put each one of the tests in a projector and started them at different times. And um, I was sitting right in the middle, Peter and I, my lover, and he helped me with it. And we were right in the middle, and he would help me turn on machines. And I filmed the projection on that screen, and that's the multimedia section. And I shot it twice. Both of them turned out to be a little different because we didn't always turn on the projector right on at the same time, but it made the effect that I wanted, and um, that turned into the multimedia section. So all the orgasms in Bijou are in that one scene. They're a couple later, but I didn't ask for them. I just got them because I wanted to get all what they call the money shots. I, I hate that expression, but... Uh, all the money shots I had in one, one section, so that people could, you know, know that they they got their money's worth and could enjoy the rest of the movie. And uh, so, there, when that happens, there hasn't been any sex yet. Uh, no, I'm sorry. There has been the one sex scene with Bill Harrison and the um, and Bill, and Bob Stubbs. But uh, that's how I did the uh, multimedia section. And um, I used a lot of projections in it and um, hung the gold curtain and and, uh, made it uh, different colors by shining the projectors with color film and, and, you know, onto that gold curtain. And so it came out very psychedelic and with all these incredible colors and um, no specific pattern to them. So I really experimented, you know, and, uh, and played. Uh, we had so much fun. I had fun making all my movies. If it uh, if it wasn't fun, uh, I wouldn't have wanted to do it. But um, I did them all, usually all by myself. On Boys in the Sand, I didn't even have a camera system. I I, I had to well, I didn't stop. I let them continue doing what they were doing, and I had to stop and reload the camera it only took 50 feet of film so I shot the whole thing in 50 feet and I would stop and I'd have to reload and I'd have to worry about the sand getting to the camera and uh, it was not easy but um, then on Bijou I had a lighting man that uh, worked with me and um, of course I had Peter who was my lover and he helped me with everything but there again um, I shot it all I did have a second cameraman in a, you know, one position. He didn't move, and I had on black, and I moved all around so that I could get all around, but he was in a stationary position. And we shot the whole thing in three hours, the whole orgy sequence. It was really the most fun, and I think it's my best film. And uh, that was uh, quite unexpected when people went in uh, to see what I'd done for a second film. 
the, uh, the I did a private screening at my house on Fire Island after the movie was finished, and I had about 25, 30 people there, and it was a big house, and it had these big glass, uh, big, the whole front of the house looking onto the bay was all glass, and they spilled over onto the deck, and half of the people were watching through the the glass front of the house, and after it was over, there wasn't a sound. I had to change reels, by the way, so I had a second reel, so I changed it as fast as I could because I didn't want to break the mood. And I told everyone they, you know, I would have grass there, but if they wanted to take any drugs, it was up to themselves. But uh, you know, I would have you know beer and soda and wine and whatever. But uh, so they they all came, and at the end of the screening. There wasn't a sound, and I thought, oh, my God, they hated it. And so I just held my ground, and a few people would come up and say a few words, and they'd walk out, and they sort of left, like, one by one, two by two, you know, and uh, I thought it was a disaster, and they were all so affected by it, you know. Uh, They didn't know what to say, and they were sort of, like, stunned, but the next day, everybody who was there was uh, was talking about it, and then people who weren't there wanted to see it. So, uh, again, it started the uh, word of mouth going. And a lot of people, when the movie opened, those who were going to analyst, they talked about the movie so much that the analysts started talking with one another about the movie, and it got up to the head of the psychology department at Columbia University, and I got a phone call from uh, the head of the department, asking me to bring up the film and show it at his house to his family and a few professors. And it happened to be on Easter Sunday. And so I took the film up there and I screened it for them. And before it started, he said, now, I don't want you to review this film at the end. I I don't care about that. But I want to know what you feel or what you felt while watching the film. So I showed the film. And then after it was over, um, he asked his young daughter, who was a teenager, and, and she said, well, I've never seen a penis before. So I was very, and she said, I was, I was very um, happy that I've had that experience now, and I can stop worrying about it, you know, uh, an adult penis. I'm sure she'd seen baby penises. But uh, then she asked her, he asked his son, and his son said, uh, he was uh, he was very taken back by the loneliness that, that everyone seemed to have, but that that's the way he interpreted the the very solemnness, solemn almost uh, almost re- religious uh, feeling that I put into the film. And he went to his wife, and she made some remark, and then he went to a couple of professors, and then he went to his mother, who was in her late seventies. And she said, well, Mr. Poole, I want to thank you for showing me this film. She said, I play bridge with two gay men. And she said, I think my bridge is going to get better because I can stop worrying about what they do in bed. I thought that was so wonderful. And I packed up my little projector and my film, and off I went. So I've got a lot of little things that happen like that, and wonderful little stories and memories that... um, some I wrote, wrote in the book, and uh, my book is, uh, I think, 300-some-odd pages, and uh, I wrote it. Uh, I was working for Calvin Klein Cosmetics, 
and I wrote it over a period of five years, and I would take every Friday off because in the, in the uh, cosmetic industry, they only work a half a day on Friday. So I would, I would take my vacation in half days, and every Friday I would take off, and I would get up Friday morning, and I'd sit at my computer, and I'd work until 5 o'clock. And it turned out I had something like 1,500 pages, and we had to cut it down to 300. So uh, I still have a copy somewhere floating around, a hard, <laughs> a hard copy. It's about two, two boxes of, you know, paper, uh, like typewriter paper. So uh, there are a lot of memories up there. You said that was on a, an Easter Sunday. Was that uh, Easter Sunday, 1972? Uh, I think it was probably 73, probably 73, because Boys of Sand opened 72. These opened in um, November of the same year. As a matter of fact, I got Worst Movie of the Year for Boys of Sand and Best Movie of the Year from Screw Magazine <laughs> the, the same year. So. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com i looked over the person sitting next to me and you know what they were doing they were also playing chumba casino coincidence i think not everybody's loving having fun with it chumba casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime anywhere even at thirty thousand feet so sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus that's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life no purchase necessary btw void were prohibited by law see terms and conditions 18 plus so it, they were both released in the same year and it was the easter sunday following the opening of Bijou, so that would be 73, I think you're right. How did you come to um, Bible? How did you decide to use that as your third project? Greed. <laughs> no, when Deep Throat you know, came out and they made so much money, I had an idea that um, I wanted to do uh, Bijou, uh, a straight movie, and I wanted to use a fashion model instead of the construction worker. And uh, then Marvin and I, we talked about it. He said, no, I think you should stay with the genre. You know, it's, you should make another gay movie. And so then the whole time I was making Bijou, I started thinking about wanting to do uh, a movie for the women's lit movement, just like I did for the gay movement. And um, I was brought up very religiously, Lutheran, I had like five ministers in my family, on both sides of my family. Um, I was, uh, you know, went to church and Sunday school regularly until I took my catechism and and uh, was told about the Virgin Mary, and I couldn't believe that, so I sort of began to lose interest in religion. But uh, I digress. Anyway, the Bible uh, always makes the women the culprits. They're always the, the doers of evil. They're always the catalyst of, of bad things happening. Uh, Eve tempts Adam to eat the apple. Uh, Bathsheba tempts David by 
bathing nude out in her garden. And um, Delilah, for mercenary reasons, um, betrays Samson and cuts his hair off, and, and consequently he's blinded and uh, tortured and tormented. And I thought, you know, that's, there's got to be something else there, you know. So I decided to justify why all these women did what they did and make a movie, and I wanted to make it like Fantasia. I wanted to do it all to classical music, and I wanted the classical music to be in chronological you know, order, like the Baroque, and then classical, and then um, uh, contemporary with the Prokofiev, and uh, tie that all together and do it with no dialogue, and um, make... Um, Eve just, she's hungry, so she wants something to eat, so she says, you know, she doesn't say, she suddenly, she just says, I'm so hungry, and the next thing you know, you see a, a mouth biting into an apple, and that's about Sheba eating her meal with her husband, and it cuts to the next section, and um, Bathsheba's husband is having an affair with the, the handmaiden, their servant, and she's not paying any attention to Bathsheba, so when she's out in the garden, she sees somebody or she realizes someone's watching her. And so she, for her own self-confidence, she decides to tease him. And she does a strip tease and gets into the fountain and bathes. And then he comes and they, he chases her. And then the same thing with, with Delilah. She has two little people as servants. And they're... As a tribute to Fellini, they're all painted blue, and um, Samson is a bully, and um, I have a little thing where the knife that uh, Uriah uses in David Bathsheba is now in Samson's knife case, and the little midget's intrigued by it, and he takes the knife and playfully and runs in the bazaar, and Samson catches him, and being the bully that he is, he strangles him to death and takes his knife back, and then of course, they go and tell Delilah that, uh, you know, uh, Willie is dead, and she comes and picks him up, and she decides to to get her revenge by cruising him and dragging him or seducing him back to her lair, and uh, she has it all prepared, and it's all thought out, and she undresses him and bathes him and oils him and, and gives him a drink, and... Um, she drugs it right in front of him, and he's vain enough to think that it's an aphrodisiac when it's not really. It's a, a sleeping potion, and he drinks it, and then he falls asleep as she's giving him fellatio, and the little midget comes down and cuts off his hair, and then some of her male servants come in, and they have a flaming torch, and they put out his eyes. So that's basically the idea that I had, and we were going to make it hardcore. But as you mentioned earlier, with the deep throat mess that was going on, we chickened out and said, no, we'll, 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 I'll do it more artistically, and we'll you know, just make it a softcore. And that's what we did. And uh, that's probably one of the reasons it failed, uh, because I had Georgina Spelman in it from Devil and Miss Jones, and she's brilliant in the movie, but she doesn't, uh, you know, there's no sex involved. And um, we, uh, we had trouble. The New York Times was so 
was so helpful with boys in the sand because I don't think they realized what they were putting in their paper. You know, I don't think they realized it was a gay movie, even though it said all-male cast. But they, uh, you know, I put a sixth of a page ad right next to X, Y, and Z starring Elizabeth Taylor in the Sunday New York Times. And uh, then we kept putting those ads in with all those quotes. But then uh, when we put uh, our ad in for the Bible, which was done by David Byrd, um, David had seen the film and he knew that there was a sense of humor to it and that it wasn't hardcore. And he knew that, that we had trouble letting the audience know that it was what it was. So he decided to make um, the Virgin Mary a Kate Smith-looking character with a long, very 30s dress. And she has the baby Jesus in her arms, and he has on shades. And uh, he was smoking a cigar originally, but David took that out. And she's trucking. And um, it says Wakefield Pool's Bible in all neon lettering and everything. And that was to let people know that it wasn't a serious Bible movie. And um, we did the same thing. We put a sixth of a page ad in the Sunday Times before it opened, the week before it opened. And then the following Monday, uh, they called and we had to take out the halos. And then the next day, they called and we had to take out the bleeding heart, which was on which was on her dress, and and take away the shades. And one by one, they just took everything out of the ad. So we lost we lost our advertising campaign. And then we opened, and it was too late to do another ad campaign. So we ran, I think, ten days and made absolutely no money. We had no ad campaign. We had just, you know, we turned it up with just square lettering for the ads and a picture of, you know, Gloria Grant, who played Delilah. But um, that's it. So the movie bombed. We got wonderful reviews. Uh, one of the reviews said, you know, they should replace Gideon's Bible in every motel room in the United States with a copy of this movie, you know. And um, Woman in After Dark said there are moments she'll remember the rest of her life, and, you know, so it was uh, very strange. But then we, I had my, I got my jollies in Berlin when we were just in Berlin for the film festival over there, and they asked us to show the Bible. They showed one of my films every night at 8.30 or 8 o'clock, and they also showed a working uh, a work print of uh, I've always said yes, and um, then I showed the Bible, and at the end of the screening, the audience stood up and clapped for two minutes. They got everything about the movie. They got all my little nuances, all my little inside tributes to all the filmmakers. Um, they just got it. I was so thrilled. I, well, I was uh, I was overwhelmed and. During the Q and A, I was there, nobody left. They were all the whole audience stayed. It was sold out, and I was telling about Gloria Grant tripping, and and I actually tripped and fell on the floor, and I broke my shoulder <laughs> during the Q and A in front of you know 200 people, and I got up and I finished the uh, I finished the Q and A, and then uh, about a half hour later, I said, "You better take me to the to the hospital." And they took me to the hospital there in Berlin, and they x-rayed me, and they said, you know, you have a broken shoulder. And I was supposed to leave the next day to come back to the United States. And so they didn't do anything but give me a harness and some very heavy aspirin, no painkillers. 
because they knew I was leaving at 8 o'clock the next morning. So um, the next morning, all the flights were canceled because Sandy hit the East Coast. And I was flown all over Europe trying to get, you know, get me back to America. Four days later, I arrived back in the United States. And for four days, I had a broken shoulder. I was flying and staying uh, in Amsterdam, and they flew me to uh, uh, Spain. And then finally, I got over to America, and then I had two different layovers in America. So uh, I had four days traveling with no pain pills and a broken shoulder. It's the worst four days of my life. But uh, I made it through and came back with the doctor and my shoulder's fine. That was quite an experience and, and quite a thrill that the Bible had been, you know, had found its audience right there in Berlin. And uh, that's one of the reasons I think uh, Vinegar Syndrome decided they wanted to release that first because they've never dealt with a gay audience before. So they're trying out the Bible first, and then they're going to ease into Boys um, Sand and Bijou. Very well thought out, and I'm in pretty good hands now. Uh, I've given it all over to, to Jim Tashinsky, and uh, he's taking care of everything for me. You know, at my age, I can't... Uh, I don't have a lot of fight left in me. i got a lot of spice and vinegar, but not much fight. I was going to ask you about Jim, and um, what did you think when he first approached you to do the documentary on your life and work, and how was that process to put it together? Well, he he had called me and wanted me to um, wanted to interview me for the um, Peter Berlin film he was doing, and I said sure. So he came down to my home in Florida, <clears throat> and we hit it off right away. Uh, very sweet man, very nice. Um, and we uh, we did the interview, and I said, I really don't have much to say about Peter because I said I had sex with him one night at the barracks in San Francisco, but we like we were both exhibitionists, and we like put on a show. So I said, that's about all I can talk about. I said, and seeing him around town, you know, he was he was like um, the mystery man. He was you'd see him in his thing, get up his his white pants and. He was like a cult figure. He, I don't know whether you know who Moondog was. Moondog was a, a man who used to stand on the corner of 6th Avenue and 54th Street in New York, and he was a composer, but he was dressed um, oh, almost like a holy man with uh, very heavy uh, wool uh, blankets and drapings on him, and, and he had a full beard, and... Um, he was like a, a cult figure around New York. Everyone knew who Moondog was. And I think he made one recording. Someone finally got him, got him to make a recording of his music. But that's the way Peter Berlin was in the Castro area and the Polk Street area. Uh, he was very attractive, very hot, and very unapproachable. And that was his whole trip, was to you know get people to look at him and desire him but then uh, he wouldn't follow through. You know, he would tease them and carry on for 45 minutes, and then he would just walk off and leave, you know, whoever was cruising him for those 45 minutes uh, standing there, which wasn't very nice, but uh, that's what he did, and that's that's how he got his reputation. But, um, Jim uh, said to me, he said, I read your book, 
He said, I even read it three times. He said, it's a wonderful book. And he said, I'm a Broadway queen. And I loved all the Broadway dish and everything. And he said, how do you feel about, you know, maybe I make the movie of the book, you know, make a documentary of you. And I immediately said, fine, yes, yes, I'd love to have my story out there. It's certainly a fascinating one. I said, it's been a fascinating life. And I shared it in the book, which I called Dirty Pool. And I got my publisher just because of the title of the book. And he said, very clever. You know, I love the title. And, and uh, he signed me without even reading a word. So, um, and it turned out they didn't treat me very nice, Alice and Press. But uh, they treated me like an X-rated film. But anyway, I digress. Uh, Jim started, and it took us six and a half, almost seven years to make the film, simply because we couldn't get enough money. People wouldn't donate. So we went with $50 donations, you know, mostly. And uh, I gave them all my films and said, you know, give them as, as token. You know, if you, if you donate $50, you'll get a copy of his book, and you'll get a copy of Bijou or Boys in the Sand, whichever you want. So they're getting a book which sold for $20 and a DVD which sold for $20, and they gave a $50 donation, and they got $40 worth of product out of it. So actually, see, it didn't cost us anything, you know, except for the DVDs, you know, cost 12 cents a piece or whatever it is there, you know, to, to make them so we were able to do that, and, and that was the incentive for people. You know. But we got one grant through a friend of mine in San Francisco who's a filmmaker, and he happened to be on this board of this grant from San Francisco. Not a large grant. I think it was like $7,500. But he told Jim to submit it, and he would do what he could, you know. And uh, we, we got a grant from them. But that's the only grant that we got. And... Um, my friends, Jim's friends, uh, people that had bought uh, Peter Berlin, and he had uh, the Peter Berlin movie, and he had a mailing list, and, and uh, it was very difficult you know, to, to raise money and uh, even to get people to be interviewed. No, none of my Broadway friends would be interviewed for the movie. And um, I asked Mary Rogers, Richard Rogers' daughter, she wrote Once Upon a Mattress, and it was a good friend of mine, and I worked with her. I was uh, the, the choreographer on the original Mattress television show, so I had known her for years. And when I was married, she and her husband and my wife and I used to play bridge. And um, uh, she agreed to do an interview, and her husband, and Jim threw the lap, a dancer. But um, I had a lot of people that I had actually given them their big break and Broadway and showbiz and they wouldn't uh, they wouldn't appear because they were didn't want to be connected with pornography so uh, it was not an easy project and uh, it's still not easy I and mean, we're having trouble getting people into the festivals to see the film when they finally come in and see it they love it and you know I know from the Q&A's you know you can tell if people walk out after they've seen a film and don't stay for a Q&A, they, they ain't too interested in, in knowing anything more, or either they're going to see another film you know, at the festival. 
but um, the reaction has been very good. The uh, couple of um, reviews that we got in Germany were excellent. Uh, of course, we haven't been reviewed here, uh, except in Chicago. We got a couple of nice reviews, and uh, we won. We got a best documentary in Chicago, and an honorable mention in Seattle. So, um, but people, as I said earlier, they they don't know who I am. So you know, to try and you know get people in to see a movie about somebody they don't know about is <laughs> not the easiest thing in the world. So now we're trying to um, find a way to to get people you know interested, and that's why we're very glad you're doing this uh, podcast. back thanks again to wakefield pool for coming on and talking about his life and his work boys in the sand and much much more and of course if you want to learn even more about wakefield pool i would say the best way to do it is to check out i always said yes the many lives of wakefield pool directed by our co-host this week mr jim tashinsky now jim i want to talk a little bit about uh your work in sort of leading up to the documentary, not the documentary itself, but you undertook, is my understanding, a restoration of some of uh, Wakefield Pool's films? They weren't uh, available in any form that lo- even resembled the way that the film should have looked. They were had been available on VHS for years in very muddy, uh, awful-looking prints. They were released on DVD, but there was no restoration, no remastering done of any kind. So when I started working on the documentary, I knew um, that I wanted to at least remaster uh, all of the films that I could get my hands on. And luckily, uh, Wakefield had his films, all of his film elements at Anthology Film Archives at the time. So uh, slowly, we, I got the, uh, the, either the negatives or the prints, because in some cases the negatives are missing, and had them uh, remastered. I, not, I wouldn't call them restored because... We didn't actually fix defects in the film. We just did a color correction so that they looked closer to what the film was uh, and managed to get all of his films done that way and then um, released some of them on DVD and made some of them available as donor gifts uh, for donors of the documentary. But it wasn't until recently that uh, we actually started restoring the films, doing full uh, 2K or 4K scans, color correction, fixing uh, defects in the films, and um, and having them released on DVD through Vinegar Syndrome, uh, who will be releasing all of Wake's films um, over the next year. Now, Jim, is it true that you actually put Jar Jar Binks into one of these movies? No, that is not true. Okay. I read a vicious <laughs> rumor about that. No, there's no Jar Jar Binks. We did actually, you know, Wakefield recut Take One, which is another one of his sort of lost films that very few people have seen. And... Uh, he actually recut it uh, in two th- in 2012 because he never liked the uh, final version. So uh, hopefully it'll be coming out in both versions, the original and the and his edited uh, version, which is actually works a lot better as in a shorter form than it did in the longer form. You know, we talk about mainstream film 
it's hard sometimes to find these elements in good shape and to be able to restore them and do all that work. What was sort of the great things that you found and also the, the really sad things that you found when you went in to look at this stuff and try to fix it up? Well, it's, it's interesting because uh, it was difficult to get out of Anthology Film Archives exactly what they had. And Wakefield couldn't remember what he had given them. He just basically turned everything over to them. Um, so we didn't know sometimes, did, was there a negative? What shape was it in? Uh, what did the prints look like? So uh, I, you know, I would have to ask for specific things. We did find out that the, um, the negatives for both Boys in the Sand and Bijou were on their way to being almost unusable. So we, when I originally did the um, standard definition remasters, uh, they were, you know, we had some difficulty kind of getting the films to look all right. The negatives had gone green, which is a bad sign. I mean, when it starts getting this green taking over it, um, all the blacks turn green, and there's really nothing you can do about it at that point. In some cases, like Bible, we only had prints, and they were in really sad shape. So, you know, I was starting to worry that we'd never be able to put Bible together in a fully restored version. Um, we it wasn't until actually Vinegar Syndrome got involved that we got everything from Anthology Film Archives and were able to go through it and find out exactly what was there. And we found all kinds of very interesting things, short films, extra pieces of stuff. In one case, a, a, a trio of short films that were done by somebody else, but Wakefield had re-edited for eight mil, the 8mm business um, and uh, and put new music to it. And so there's a lot of really cool stuff that we didn't even know existed that Wakefield didn't know existed. And lo and behold, there was a um, pre-print working copy of Bible that had never been screened. So it was in gorgeous condition. Then we also find out, though, that the uh, negative for Bijou was unusable. It, it could never be restored again. It had just gone completely green. So we had worried that there wasn't going to be a version of Bijou that we'd be able to, to do in a, a full restoration of. But, um, you know, we found a print. Somebody had a private print that was absolutely pristine um, and uh, managed to get it that way. So it's, you know, film restoration is always a, a crazy story of, you know, oh, my God, that's lost forever. So we think, um, oh, but we've got this. And then you find out that you don't have that. And that wasn't lost forever. And you just never know. I'm still waiting to find out a number of things that may or may not be in that pile of stuff that we got from Anthology. Um, so it's a, it's fascinating. And it keeps me um, keeps me from going crazy sometimes, just wondering what's going to show up next. Now, Bible is already out on DVD. What's the plan for the rest of these? The plan is, is that uh, Bijou will be coming out in April, I believe. And then Boys in the Sand, we're gonna. There'll be a two DVD set um, that will include tons of extras and early films of Wakefield's that sort of lead up to Boys in the Sand. Um, that should be coming out around the summer. Um, and then uh, Take One, uh, which is shot in San Francisco, and his only film, by the way, that um, isn't well. I shouldn't say that. Of the film films, the only one that's not silent, you know, with just musical accompaniment. There's actual people talking and dialogue, but it's a documentary porn hybrid. It's a really interesting film. That'll be coming out probably October-ish, and then moving, a new version of moving, um, along with some other um, 8 millimeter stuff that, that Wake had done in the same period, uh, that'll be coming out uh, around the end of the year, 
um, December-ish, something like that. So everything will be out by the end of the year. One of his films had some legal problems. Was that moving? No, it's take one. He uh, had a producer who was his partner on the film. When the film was released, it was it was released in 1977. Porn theaters were kind of on their way out. They were going out. Video was starting to come in. Uh, it was a difficult time to be releasing porn films, especially something as bizarre as Take One, which was a documentary about a group of men in San Francisco and their sex, sex lives and sex fantasies. Um, it is pornographic, but it's also a documentary, so you know people didn't know what to make of it. It didn't end up making a lot of money, and the producer felt that, um, and because Wakefield was heavily into drugs at the time, the producer felt that Wakefield was cheating him, and so basically kept the elements uh, locked up, wouldn't uh, let the film be released on video ever, uh, to this day won't answer phone calls, emails, anything about it. So uh, Wakefield does not have the original elements of the film. He has several prints of it. But yeah, it could not be shown for the longest time because he was afraid of legal issues. But um, I convinced him that we really don't need to worry about it since he is as much of an owner of the film as the producer is. And he has his own elements. He's got his own prints. So we can do whatever we want with it. It's a film that uh, I think a lot of people are going to be very interested in seeing. One of the things when we've done these these shows looking at adult films, specifically in this era, and we talked about this um, on Devil and Miss Jones, and we even asked Wakefield this in the interview, as you just heard, is, you know, we talk about the Library of Congress. Now, the Library of Congress always picks these films and they restore them and they put them on the shelf and they say these are, you know, important to cultural history and um, in art and, and all these things. And was wanted to get your take on this and, and what you think as someone who's been following Wakefield's work and, and researching it and things like that. Should movies such as Boys in the Sand, Bijou, things like that, be considered to be saved and restored as as important pieces of American art? Oh, absolutely. They never will, but they absolutely should be. And I mean, I would I would put things like Deep Throat, even though I don't think Deep, Deep Throat is that great of a movie. Um, it has a very important place in the American uh, American entertainment history, and even in like the general gestalt of American sexuality. Um, so yeah, I, I it, it, they definitely should be. Uh, and it's part of the problem is getting these films. You know, the, the people that are doing the restorations on these films are people that love these films. You know, distri- uh, Steve Morowitz at Distrib Picks, uh, Joe Rubin at Vinegar Syndrome. Um, these are people who are doing it because they love these films uh, and feel that they're important and know that nobody else is going to do it. Uh, it's just, you know, they won't. The government will never put a sexually explicit film in the Library of Congress as, or, you know, preserve it um, as a important piece of art. It just, it won't happen. Jim, this isn't your first rodeo. You've done documentary work before. Can you tell us a little bit about um, that man, Peter Berlin? Yeah, um, I guess I'm, I've become known as the porn guy now because I've done two documentaries about people who made porn, although neither one of them are really all that much about porn. My first documentary was uh, about Peter Berlin, who was a is still he's still around a model, filmmaker, photographer, fashion designer. He was this incredible character 
who was world famous in the um, mid seventies and uh, sort of disappeared. Uh, was sort of known as the Greta Garbo of gay porn because he didn't want to make any more movies. He only made two films. He sort of vanished into the ether and nobody really knew much about him. And I ended up uh, meeting him through a mutual friend. And uh, I had done a short film and and was looking for another project to do. And I just sat down and talked to him for a few times. And I thought, oh, my God, this guy is not only is he incredible and he lives in an apartment that's full of his own photographs because he only took pictures of himself. So he was this artistic narcissist and incredible photographer, uh, just incredible, and had known everybody, had worked with everybody. Maplethorpe had photographed him. Andy Warhol had photographed him. You know, he, everybody thought he was just this incredible creature. Um, so I found out about him and told his story in a documentary that did uh, pretty well. Um, and uh, that proved to me that I could put together a feature documentary without uh, killing myself. Then, you know, this one almost did kill me. So <laughs> I always said, yes, it's been a long time coming. So it's, uh, it, it took a lot longer than that man Peter Berlin did. So did the one lead to the other? Yeah, they did. Um, only because, I mean, I had met Wakefield and interviewed him for that man Peter Berlin, and he's in the film. Even though he barely knew Peter and, and hadn't met him, um, he had some interesting stories to tell about time and, and Peter and the stuff. But I met Wake, and um, I knew he had worked on Broadway, and he'd worked with every important uh, director and composer and lyricist and star on Broadway. And I'm a bit of a Broadway queen. So I ended up talking to Wake that first time a little bit about Peter and a lot about Broadway. Uh, so I was already it's like, oh, God, this is a guy that I can talk to forever because he, you know, he's he's part of gay history and he's part of Broadway history. Oh, my God, this is incredible. Um, so, yeah, it did directly lead it, lead into that. I read his book and then asked him if he'd let me make a, a documentary about him. And luckily, he liked the Peter Berlin film. So he said yes. He always says yes. That's right. To life, not necessarily to anybody else. <laughs> so I didn't know if he would let me or not. I was actually a little nervous that he would say, you know, I really don't think so. I wrote a book. I don't really need a movie. But um, he really was quite excited about it and loves to chastise me for how long it took. You know, we talk about people having, you know, various aspects of themselves. And this is a man who I get the feeling that maybe there's another hour and a half that got cut somewhere, you know, out of the film that tells even more layers because it just seems he had so many adventures. He did so many things. Um, just such a creative, creative person. Yeah. It was really difficult to get his life into 90 minutes. I, I believe me. I, there is a lot that is not in that film. Um, there's actually a lot that's not in his book, too. His book was twice as long before it was edited down. So, yeah, he's had an incredibly rich life. And he's a very, to me, he's very inspirational. Because here's somebody who, every time things didn't work out for him, you know, one door closed, he would find another door to open. Broadway career was heading down the tubes. Let's make a movie and see what happens becomes the most famous uh, gay filmmaker and gay person in the world at the time. I mean, there were only about five out gay people in the world at the time. Um, and uh, and then, you know, gets addicted to drugs and doesn't make films anymore. What does he ha- do? Well, he becomes a chef. He never 
would give up on stuff, no matter how dark it got. And it got pretty dark sometimes for him. So, I, t- I mean, I'm incredibly inspired by him as somebody who just, just never gave up and uh, always managed to find something about life that was worth living. Now, next week we are going to be talking with Jeffrey Schwartz about cruising. Mm. And I noticed that you've got a thanks credits in, in uh, Vito. Part of it is because I, will, I, I usually give something to the Kickstarter Indiegogo campaigns. As Jeffrey has, for me, Jeffrey's in the thanks for I Always Said Yes. It was interesting. I first met Jeffrey because he saw That Man Peter Berlin and was talking to Jack Wrangler, who's also in That Man Peter Berlin, about doing a documentary. And so Jeffrey called, cold called me and said, you know, I'm talking to Jack about doing a documentary about him and just wanted to get your, um, you know, some ideas from you about how you got the rights to use some of the porn films because it's really hard to find who the rights holders are. I mean, Jeffrey is an incredibly, wonderfully nice person. Uh, and there aren't a lot of those in the entertainment industry, at least that I found. Jeffrey is a truly, really, really wonderful person. And so we ended up talking quite a bit. And it turns out that he is obsessed with somebody else that I'm obsessed with, a relatively unknown cult filmmaker from the 50s. And uh, so we bonded over that. And it's it's just, I don't know, I, you know, whenever Jeffrey does something, I try to give him a little bit of um, financial support if I can. And uh, vice versa, because we're kind of both working in the same world. You know, we're doing documentaries about interesting people with interesting lives. Um, and uh, he's, of course, much more successful at it than I am. <laughs> and it cranks him out, and you know, it's just amazing. But uh, that, that, that's how I met him, was through um, That Man, Peter Berlin. You can't tease us with something like that. You have to tell us who's the filmmaker that you're both obsessed with. The guy's name is Tom Graff. He was the writer, uh, director producer and he also acted in a film called Teenagers from Outer Space which has been riffed on by MST3K and uh, is sort of a cult film but um, he made other films and he's, uh, his first film's not been seen anywhere since 1962. Luckily there is one print of it uh, and it it's hopefully will be restored very soon um, but he's had this just cra- he's crazy, crazy person having a crazy life trying to make it in Hollywood in the 50s and 60s and into the, well, he committed suicide in 1970. Um, and I've been researching his life, digging up people who knew him, and it's just crazy. I've stalked people. I've hung out in front of their houses. You know, it's just it's insane. Um, and I know other people that have been had the same obsession with him, and it never leads to good things. So do you see a possibility of you and Jeffrey uh, getting together and creating a documentary around this since you're both upset? Um, you know, we've talked about other uh, possible projects. Um, I, I don't know. You know, it's I can't see the forest for the trees right now with um, the next project. But it something is going to happen with Tom Graff, and I'm sure Jeffrey will help or be involved somehow. You know, talking about the current project, though, I always said yes. One thing I really wanted to ask you about is um, in the interview with with Wakefield that we have, I I sort of get a a small sense of feeling forgotten and sort of his place within gay liberation and and gay history. And do you feel that maybe that is the case and that in some way your film is to help correct that or inform younger people who uh, may not know uh, what his contribution was, as you were talking about with uh, Boys in the Sand and people going, I could come out now because, you know, look at the film. Yeah. Yeah, um, it definitely is. I mean, one of the reasons I wanted to do it was because the story was so incredible. 
but also uh, he is forgotten. Nobody knows who this man is. And without Wakefield, there wouldn't be gay film festivals today. There wouldn't be gay independent film. There wouldn't be a lot of things. Um, he really was the pioneer, the forgotten pioneer. And even today, I mean, I I get irritated sometimes because um, there'll be all these articles about, you know, just recently there was one about, you know, eight films that change sex for on the American screen. And it's, you know, it was on the Huffington Post. And uh, it's it has to do with a, a series that is being done in Philadelphia called uh, Free to Love, the, the Cinema of the Sexual Revolution, January and February in Philadelphia. And Boys in the Sand is going to be shown. But it wasn't one of the films that was highlighted in uh, on the Huffington Post piece. So I, of course, get on there and it's like, well, wait a minute, there's a really huge missing piece here. And I think a lot of it has to do with it's gay. So uh, film historians either don't know about it or don't want to talk about it because it's not as, um, you know, Maybe they're uncomfortable with it. I don't know. Uh, I think minority uh, filmmakers always sort of get pushed to the side, and it isn't until a lot later that people will say, "Oh, well, wait a minute. There was this, you know, person that did this way before this person did that." So yes, a lot of it is me uh, kind of trying to get him back in the uh, into film history and get people to understand that this was such an important Boys in the Sand. And, and Bijou, they were both incredibly successful and, and incredibly crossover films that allowed the sexual revolution to take place in a lot of ways. Uh, certainly the sexual revolution in American film. When you have 1972 with Bijou, Last Tango in Paris, and Deep Throat all being incredibly successful at the box office. You know, it changed everything. It changed everything. As a little bit of an outsider from this, I mean, not just with gay porn, but porn in general sometimes, it's like when I think gay porn... I think Jeff Stryker is the first name that comes to mind. Who do you see as being some of the other pioneers of gay erotica uh, other than, you know, obviously Stryker isn't until, you know, 20 right, years after. But but what's what? who are the pioneers? Who are the other guys that are, are out there with Wakefield, with Peter Berlin, kind of doing these um, things that people should be paying attention to. Obviously, we need to pay attention to Wakefield, but who are the other folks that we should be looking at? Oh, there's there's quite a few. Um, Jack DeVoe, for sure, Fred Halstead. L.A. Plays Itself, Sex Garage. Just, these were West Coast filmmakers. Um, Fred Halstead and the Gage brothers, Joe Gage, for example, uh, with Kansas City uh, Trucking Company and L.A. Tool and Die, and he did a, a, a trio of films that were incredibly successful. Those filmmakers in particular, and there's probably a few others that I'm forgetting, but uh, definitely check. Oh, Peter DeRome, who was actually before Wakefield, but nobody had seen his work until after Wakefield. And BFI just put out a whole uh, DVD of Peter DeRome's films, in, you know, very sexually explicit, but in Britain, apparently, and if it's the BFI, you can do that. So, yeah, there's, there's several, and they're, they all made sort of experimental art sex films. Not porn the way you'd think of porn now. Right, not that Jeff Stryker type of no, thing. No, not the Jeff. By the time we come to Jeff Stryker, the you know, gay porn had the all the everything had been set in stone. There really isn't much of a story. The guys do this. There's that. There's that. There's the cum shot. You know, etc. How is I always said yes doing? I know that it's played several film festivals. Is there a plan so far for a DVD release with that, or are you still kind of uh, taking it around to festivals? What's what's going on? Yeah, with that? we're um, we did uh, 
a few festivals in in uh, 2013, um, a lot of European festivals uh, and uh, a couple of U.S. festivals. Most recently, uh, Reeling in Chicago and the Seattle Gay and Lesbian Film Festival. So we're, we'll be playing festivals um, through probably the first half of 2014, hoping to have DVD and VOD distribution taken care of um, by you know the, the fall, I hope. Um, talking to some various companies, uh, but uh, it's um, a little more difficult than than I had anticipated. I don't know why, for what reason, but um, it's a little bit more difficult sell than Peter Berlin because Peter was so outrageous, and that got a lot of people interested. And I and we opened in a major international film festival. With this film, um, we're taking a much slower approach, and I think it's just going to have to we're going to have to build some publicity around Wakefield and who he is and why he's important. So as we like to say, it's, it's a marathon, not a sprint. All right, we're going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show. How would you like to disappear? Disappear? Go undercover. You know this man? Who's here? victims are all the same physical type. What about him, Skip? Late 20s, 140, 150 pounds, dark hair, dark eyes. Have you ever seen him before? I want to send you out there to see if you can attract this guy. How, where? A New York City detective in search of a killer is about to disappear into the night. Is it dangerous? I can't talk about it. How do you know you're going to end up the same person when it's over? An odyssey to the edge of city life. Bartenders are starting to give me some information. There's this uh, name keeps popping up all the time. There he is. The one with the hat. Is that the one that followed you? Yeah. Why didn't you go with him? I don't know. I think you should check him. What he sees. What he feels. I don't think I can do the job, Captain. I don't think I can handle it. This is stuff going down. I don't think I can. uh, I can deal with it. experiences what he discovers will change his life forever Al Pacino cruising
That's right. We're back next week with a look at William Friedkin's Cruising. So figure out what color hanky you need for that back pocket. We'll be joined with special guest co-host Jeffrey Schwartz to talk about the controversial film. And before we go, we want to thank this week's special guests, Wakefield Pool and Jim Tushinsky, for joining us this week. And Jim, before you go, uh, what are you currently working on and where can folks go to learn more about you and your work? Well, of course, I have a website, jimtushinsky.com. There's a website for the uh, documentary, IAlwaysSaidYes.com. Probably the easiest one to remember is wakefieldpool.com, which currently will take you to the documentary. We're currently planning film festivals with I Always Said Yes. We've been funded primarily by donors, tax-deductible donors, because of our fiscal sponsorship with the San Francisco Film Society. So as we aim for a commercial release, DVD and video on demand, we need to purchase additional licensing, we need insurance, a number of things. So we're keeping the tax-deductible donation process open. You can go to IAlwaysSaidYes.com, click on Donate, and you'll get information about how to make a tax-deductible donation, which will really help us release the film to a wider audience. Plus, you get a tax deduction and some pretty cool thank-you gifts. I am currently, uh, like I said, I'm still you know, obsessing about Tom Graff and that whole project. Uh, but I also am working on a uh, what will probably start as a short documentary, completely different than anything I've done so far. Um, it has to do with the survivor of a a really horrendous child abuse, uh, pornography, and murder-for-hire ring in Louisiana in the 80s. It's just an incredible story, and, and the man that survived it, it, it just astounds me that this man is not dead or uh, insane based on what happened. Uh, it's, a, it's a really amazing story and very, very different from anything I've done. So I, I just don't know what's going what's gonna to become of that one. Are you already kind of planning, you know, is there going to be a Kickstarter or something when that comes around? Uh, we'll see. Um, I'm cutting. T- we had shot a bunch of stuff a couple of years ago, actually, in Louisiana. So I'm cutting that together as a short documentary to see if we can get interest in doing a feature. Uh, it's going to cost a little more money than I can certainly raise at this point. So hopefully with a short version, we can get people with some deeper pockets to to be interested but yeah i mean kickstarter indiegogo is the way to go i think people are maybe getting kickstarter fatigue a bit because everybody seems to be having a kickstarter campaign (laughs) but uh yeah inevitably i'm sure i'm gonna have to raise money that way all right well if you do let us know and we'll be sure to put that out on the website put up on the facebook group all that kind of stuff so and of course we'll put links for your stuff out on our website which is projection-booth.com i want to thank you again jim for coming on it's been a real pleasure talking to you and it's been a real pleasure having everyone listening to us so we will uh Definitely keep everyone up to date as to where I always said yes is playing, hopefully in their area. And when Wakefield's films come out on DVD, we will definitely be posting links for that because folks need to check that out. So head on over to the website, projection-booth.com. Give us some feedback and keep on keeping on.
Where the 